So I've got a bunch of questions I'm asking myself, like, when are the times I'm feeling most proud? When are the times I'm feeling, like, I'm most engaged? When are the times I'm feeling all lots of, like, positive emotion, almost energised? And then noticing trends within all of those, and that's how then I've identified, like, okay, we really need to be in these areas in order to feel most aligned. That's what then gives me energy. Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of Webflail. I'm your host, Jack a failure connoisseur, and today my guest is Lizzie Curtis. Lizzie is the Head of Design and Development at Sidelabs, a social impact agency that uses the power of no code to make the world a better place. Lizzie started off as a graphic designer and illustrator and then taught for Shillington, a graphic design school in London. She then freelanced before harnessing the power of no code tools. Fun facts about Lizzie. She sings in a community choir. She runs a detective agency. She rides a yellow bicycle. They're on her website. I just thought that was fun to throw into the intro. Failures we talk about in this episode are 1. Setting boundaries 2. Finding purpose and 3. Undervaluing herself as a designer. So, embrace and learn from failure in episode 39 of Webflow with Lizzie Curtis. Lizzie Welcome to the Webflow podcast. Thanks, Jack. What a pleasure to be here. It is so fun having you on. I haven't seen you since your amazing talk at the Webflow London meetup. That was so fun. I really enjoyed that. I mean, it was just such a wholesome evening. What can you not enjoy about that little combination of people and thoughts and lives all converging? It was beautiful. Yeah, it was really fun. And I think everyone got quite a lot out of the different talks. So for anyone that didn't come to the Webflow London meetup, got to come to the next one. And the next one will be announced soon. Exciting times ahead. So I want to just dig into your past a little bit for anyone that doesn't know you. I just said you were an illustrator, designer, and then you came across the power of no-code tools. Tell me about that change. Yeah, so I started off, I did a degree in illustration. And I started off my career as a freelance illustrator, which very slowly and unofficially moved into graphic design. Um, I was actually working in a cafe, community cafe. I've got a real soft spot for community cafes. If I walk past one, I'm like, oh, I've got to go make a coffee. I've got to go <laughs> chat with some customers. I just love it. I love it so much. I think in an alternate life, I would be just running a cafe somewhere. But I did things like, and did the menu in the cafe and then regular customers would come in and say oh I like the design of the menu can you design me a business card and that was basically how my graphic design career started was making things for regular customers and then it was at one of those cafes that I found Webflow and I built the website for the cafe in Webflow and that was like possibly one of my first Webflow things and that was before Webflow had a CMS. So I was literally right at the start. Back just in putting in all the different menu items manually. Just, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's just me managing it. So I didn't need to hand it over to anyone. So it was all good. Yeah. And then I built websites for customers who came into the cafe. That um, is the randomest way of getting clients I've ever heard. Amazing. You were just yeah. serving them beans on toast. And then they were like, who did this menu? It's beautiful. And you were literally. like, Crowls me. <laughs> yeah. I had some of the best clients as well. I'm not even joking. So there was so the, the cafe is in Limehouse and there's a there's actually like a convent in Limehouse. 
of an actual community of nuns. And because the cafe was so close, the nuns would sometimes come in for a coffee. You know, everyone's got to have coffee, haven't they? And uh, one of them came in and was like, we've heard that there's a designer here and we've unearthed a memoir of um, a nun from in France who was like writing their memoir in like a really important time in history. And it's all written in French. I've translated it and we want it published as a little book. Can you design the book? So I literally did like this little typesetting job of this book. And that was one of my best clients yet. (laughs) God, that is the craziest client. Just imagine that. You live near a convent. You're serving coffees to nuns. And then a job job comes from the higher power. You don't necessarily see that on those like... Ways to grow your web flow agents. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ten ways to grow your agents. Work in a community cafe. <laughs> Perfect the flat white. <laughs> to build a trust with your customer. <laughs> Make coffee so good that Jesus would drink it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's Crazy. <laughs> and then, was this kind of where the, the detective agency came in as well? Because you obviously kind of were involved with clients that were doing their own detective work. Is that kind of where you were just like, oh, this is actually kind of fascinating. You know, tell tell us about how that came in as well. There were a lot of connections with this sort of meeting lots of random people and the start of the tech detective agency. I think it was actually anecdotally sitting around a table with a bunch of friends and one person said, oh, I saw a UFO once and it's never been explained. And then a friend who I was with was like, ah, was it this? And had like Google search, you know, had the picture. And she was like, yes, it was that. And then it was kind of like a case solved anecdotally over the table. And then we were just like, do you know what? I think we could really make this a thing. Because like everyone's got an anecdotal mystery at some point. Like if you're at the pub at some point and say you run a detective agency, someone from the group of people that you're with is going to say yes something mysterious has happened and it's as easy as that to get clients genius and just so we're clear you're not actively trying to get clients for the detective agency are you or or are you (laughs) clients come to us the right people come to us are you serious i didn't realize it was like an actual yeah okay an actual detective agency yeah, I mean, I thought it was kind of like an actual detective agency in the sense that, you know, you and your friends met up to solve mysteries, but I didn't realize that you had clients' clients. Yeah, yeah. The first mystery is usually like how people find the agency because SEO is actually terrible on the site. So that's like one hurdle they have to cross. And then we'll get a little message on the form, little little notification, got a new Webflow form submission on your site. <laughs> And then someone says, oh, I've got a mystery for you. <laughs> i got a mystery for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So if anyone is interested in checking out um, Lizzie's detective agency, Marmont Road is the name. The, yeah. the missing ham, the childish voice, the kids in the window. These are some of the featured cases that are on the website if anyone's keen to check it out. Mm-hmm. You're the first detective... I've had on the podcast so what an honor thank you (laughs) so you're doing detective work and then you're obviously extremely busy with client work Mm -hmm. how on earth do you do you juggle your time is it detective work by night 
I imagine it is. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. In between things. To be honest, the detective work takes up less time than you might imagine. <laughs> Are you just going on Google? Just a quick quick Google search. Well, we tend to try and refuse like detective briefs that can be Googled because then you're like, oh, that's not a mystery then, is it? Too easy, mate. Too easy. <laughs> <laughs> but it usually takes just like a bit of, you know, it's like a, a, and a, a wee drum of whiskey and then a, you turn the lights down low in the evening and then you have a little think about it and then put out ideas, you know. So it's less intense, it has to be said. <sighs> it's probably actually more like the day job and plus also I set up my own little business that has I've got a few clients for that as well so that's probably the thing that takes up actual free time wow okay and when you say a little business are you talking about Jammer Buck Studio mm, yeah 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 so just to be clear then so you're doing side labs working for that agency for your like working time nine to five type yeah. thing and then you're also doing mom and road and your own freelance clients with your own studio, Jawabuck Studio. Isn't yeah, that right? That's right, yeah. Wow. Okay. You're a busy, busy lady. Busy well, Lizzie. Not... Oh, yeah, busy Lizzie. Let's just rewind for anyone that's listening and is like, how the hell do I manage my time with multiple different clients and life? You seem to be doing that quite well. How would you advise someone to think about a block of time and the tasks that they need to do? Um, Prioritisation. I tend to break down the things I need to do and give give myself a little estimate of how long I think things are going to take from the outset, but also how what, what type of activity it is. So some stuff, like detective stuff, is all just thinking and you tend to need to have longer than half an hour to do that kind of work. But then designing, especially if it's like implementing a design across multiple pages, something like that, I feel like that's less thinking, more doing. And it's then easier to be efficient on things and speed yeah. up efficiency on those kinds of tasks if you're trying to like yeah. make more time. That makes sense. So what you're saying is that you can do the things that you need to get done that are visual, that you don't really need to think about. And that what you can do is just do those kind of manual tasks but I also think you must be very good at time blocking, you know, thinking, okay, I've got to get this done and you just, you have to get it done. Because I often think sometimes the problem comes when you've got too much time to do something and then yeah. that task expands to fill that time. Whereas That's if you've got an hour, you've got gone an hour, like you have to get that thing out the door to, you know, to a client or, you know, you've got a meeting that's coming up in an hour, you've got to show client work that's like, Okay, I need to get this done. Yeah. Now. Maybe it was uh, also having a kid that was then really like makes that more important. And maybe that was good training as well. Because then, yeah. like, okay, time is different. Time is very different. Matt Evans said this as well. He said that the biggest life hack to be more efficient is, is having a kid. So it's like quite an expensive option. But, uh, <laughs> very strange productivity tool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you look at a kid and you think, not that going to be that productive, but he, I mean, he smashes stuff out. So um, I, I really do believe it is. And so just to be clear, then you went from a designer and illustrator to a no coder. And I think a lot of people have this kind of a path in the Webflow space. It's quite interesting when, you know, people say I'm a Webflower. Why did you choose Webflow out of, you know, all these different tools? Because obviously there's plenty of different no code tools that are easier to use. Why Webflow? 
So when I um, found Webflow, I'd already been um, doing some bit of coding. So um, HTML and CSS sites, like my, my own site, I think the previous cafe site, and also the uh, comedy group that I used to be part of did all of that site. And it got to the point when um, um, sites were needing to be responsive. So it's kind of like dates of the point I found Webflow. And the fact that it used all of the principles that I was already familiar with and uh, the code was coming out super clean and it released me to not have to learn how to make something responsive by coding it. That was that was why. Actually, I just fell in love with Webflow straight away. There wasn't even any other tool. I was like, oh, maybe I should use this one. I was just literally like, Oh my gosh, Webflow. And I even got an email that I sent to web to the Webflow team. On it was in like something ridiculous, like 2015. I was like, Hi Webflow. Um I've been using the Webflow for a couple of months now and I just wanted to say I really like it. Um thanks, Lizzie. <laughs> that was my email. And they got back and they said, well done. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Well, have a good night. <laughs> nice. I think I feel really <laughs> And I feel like, I think it just continued in that way. I just didn't, it was my first love, you know, and I haven't been tempted. <laughs> <laughs> haven't got eyes for anyone else. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> sounds a bit silly, but it's just what happened. <laughs> no, that's great. And so, I mean, in in the ter- in terms of the, the no-code, space i mean it's interesting that um side labs is like we are a no code agency mm. because i feel like a lot of agencies might actually use quite a lot of no code tools to actually build stuff um but they won't publicly advertise that it's a no code tool in the same way that it seems to be your kind of value proposition is that just because you want clients to know that look once we've built this for you you can use it moving forward is is that kind of part of the idea or you know what is that such a highlight for side labs yeah i think i think what it's it's about not necessarily just about the tools but about the mindset of no code it being about democratizing about being putting these really powerful tools into the hands of people who who may be non-technical but have ideas or have ways of thinking that can improve the world and so I think it's not necessarily like, come to us and we will use no code. It's kind of like, come to us and we will problem solve in a way that it harnesses all the principles of what no code is about. Mm. And in some ways, maybe there's a better way of communicating that because no code is a jargon thing. They're like, when I rock up to my community choir and they say, so what do you do? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> no code. Then they're like, okay go away <laughs> i don't know who you are what you do so <laughs> so there, there, there is kind of maybe a blocker of jargon by leading with that but also maybe yeah maybe there's just a bit of thinking to do around like how do you express that mindset of what no code is about are you ready to talk about your failures then okay yeah i'm ready we've done the chit chat now we're getting into the meat, <laughs> the meat and potatoes so tell me about failure number one Failing to communicate what's okay and what's not okay and setting boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of feel like boundaries is kind of one of the key things I've needed to learn 
and I'm still learning. And it feels like there's plenty more to learn. So that um, that uh, what's okay and what's not okay is the definition of boundaries from Brené Brown. I don't know if you've heard any of her stuff. But yeah, yeah. She's amazing. I, she's amazing on podcasts if anyone's uh, intrigued to listen to her. Yeah, and I just absolutely love that definition because I've always heard of the word boundaries. So you've got to have really good boundaries. And I'm like, like oh, how do you, de- what, what is that? <laughs> but just defining it as like what's okay and what's not okay has just been incredibly helpful. And I guess that's in client work, in design work, in like work-life balance, it kind of can apply to so many different things. And it's something that I have failed to do. And it has bitten me on the bum for not having done it. I, I always think it's interesting when people say, oh, you need you need to set strong boundaries because it's hard to know what even is the field where you're meant to put your boundaries if you yeah. haven't got kind of some life experience and a, and a sense of what's uh, what's right and wrong for you in the context of client work, I think. You know, sometimes I was talking to um, Elsa Amri on a podcast episode the other day and she was saying that, um, you know, this, this client basically said, how much is it? Uh, you know, for this job. And she completely undersold herself and she charged very little. And they were like, yeah, great. When can we start? Perfect. And and this job carried on and she kind of got resentful every time they, they paid her part of that, um, you know, retainer. And and I think that's a really good measure to know where your boundaries lie. Like if, you, if you're kind of resentful when you get given what you've asked for from life, then maybe you need to reevaluate you know what why that is and 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 kind of and work through that and then and that might lead you to to know where your boundaries lie does that make sense that is exactly it it's kind of like you have to go through it to find out okay yep that was not okay yeah exactly <laughs> but then you're kind of like oh why do why do we have to learn things like that why can't mm-hmm. we learn it just by reading about it yeah. how do we have to actually go through the feeling of resentment pain terror all kinds of things just to learn that that's not okay and how to then mitigate against that in the future but i guess you know Mm -hmm. that's how you that's how you do it isn't that's how you learn yeah i mean i kind of think if you're just cruising along and nothing's really going wrong then i i i can't help feeling that you know that's not entirely healthy either though I mean, I think it's good to have your assumptions and beliefs challenged a bit, you know, and mm-hmm. and make mistakes as you go along with client work. You know, for example, if you feel kind of resentful because you've done tons and tons of work for a project that you don't feel like you've charged enough, well, mm-hmm. good. That's going to lead you in the right, that's going to get you closer to, you know, whatever you are going to be happy to get paid with once you, you know, know what that figure is or or you know, know how much effort correlates to what amount of, you know, financial exchange of of energy, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I kind of think it's, as much as you're like, oh, this is a bit of a failure, I kind of think that's a healthy one in the context of freelancing. I think you should maybe always be be kind of figuring out what your boundaries are, depending on, on where you're at with your career and, and what your experiences are with clients. I love that. That is really important, isn't it? Because it's like, you could definitely view it as being like, I did not set the right boundary or I have failed. 
Or you could view it being like, I have just discovered where a boundary should go. And this is great because this will help me going forward. Yeah, it's it's, it's a data point. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, just to, to kind of share what my experience is of this, I'm talking about this kind of quite passionately just because very recently I've had a very difficult client project where, you know, the scope's changed and there's a potential retainer in the mix. So I'm kind of like, ooh, do I want to push back at this stage and say, look, this is out of scope or do I want to say, okay, I'm going to do this, but just so that you know, moving forward, that's out of line. And I've been trying to work out, you know, I think a lot of the time it's very easy to blame the client and say, mm-hmm this client's terrible man or whatever and actually i think often clients are bad because you haven't set clear enough boundaries and that might not even be your fault because you don't even know where the boundaries lie but then that you then need to realize that and then kind of set expectations moving forward from from where that line has been crossed and like i just said i mean you can either say this is all your fault never working with you again i'm getting out of this situation or you can just take a breath like reflect and just be like okay here's how i'm going to take charge of this situation and um and yeah learn learn from that experience like you're saying as well like it's not necessarily like you can want to blame it on the client and i think there are genuinely difficult things to deal with 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 clients like there just always is going to be just as there is with any relationship there's always going to be humans they're so annoying (laughs) yeah but i think you're totally right in that it's still how you manage them but then it's learning to recognize what you need to pay attention to so i think in the past i've definitely noticed like oh the web client seems um, a little bit unsure on that oh i'm sure they're they're fine and then at that moment, that was like, okay, no, that they weren't fine. So that's like, but it's kind of like being aware and trusting your instincts and saying, Ashley, I need to like listen to that little instinct that says, I don't think they're quite understanding this or, and then over explaining because you, um, I read a really good James Clear quote. He's obviously my, the easiest person to quote because he sends quotes in an email every week it's fantastic about over explaining and just how you've got nothing to lose by over explaining because you just make sure that everyone's on the same page responding to that little tiny voice in your head that says i know i'm not sure about this and learning how to listen to it definitely actually coming off the back of that carlos sepulveda he talked about this where basically he'll write down what that client conversation has been you know what has been said during that client conversation and what the next steps are so every time he has a client conversation he'll be taking notes you know this you have agreed to xyz here's what we talked about during this call here's what i'm going to be doing here's what you're going to get to me by next call which will be on the you know 27th of april whatever and by making those notes it might sound a bit like that's a massive effort after you've just had a client call you've just talked about everything why would you need to write that down but it's kind of just saying look it's almost just like a a digital contract as it were that's Mm -hmm. like okay this is what's been said this is how we're moving forward just so that that's understood on both sides because i think a lot of the time especially with visuals as well 
you know, if you say to me, oh, I'd like a happy design, I mean, I might think yellows, I might think like round fonts, I might think animations, I'm, but your idea of happy might be something completely different visually. And I think that's that's why, um, you know, these kind of never assuming, but always trying to bolster the idea that we want open communication that's very, very transparent. Um, mm-hmm. It's really key. For sure. By the way, I found this quote from Brené Brown as you were speaking, strong back, soft front and wild, wild heart. Yes, I love that. So good. So much to unpack from all of those things. Yeah. I feel like there's like a 40 minute podcast on just unpacking that quote. <laughs> Tell me about failure number two, working my heart out on something I don't believe in. Tell us what that means. Okay. Here we go. So I feel like where I'm at currently, I can I can honestly say that with side labs, mm. I feel like I'm uniquely using my skills and experiences in a way that means that it's 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 me. That I'm putting my myself into it. I'm not doing something that I can I just can do. I'm doing something that I'm uniquely positioned to do. Mm. But then also the output of the work that I'm producing is going towards something that I believe in in a bigger context, mm. as in um, giving tools to nonprofits and charities so that their lives can be better, mm. and therefore the end of service users' lives can be better. So I feel like. I'm pouring a lot of energy into something that I feel is um, a worthy a worthy thing to be pouring my heart into. And however, in the past, I feel like I've been putting in similar amounts of effort and then seeing the end result going off into something I'm like, oh, they don't deserve that. Or what am I doing this for? Why am I putting all this effort in for that? And then having like a fundamental mismatch. And I, I, some personality types, you know, it's not an issue. Like if you're doing the thing that you love, it doesn't matter necessarily where it's going or who it's for. But I think for me, not recognizing that, that discomfort early enough, potentially, I almost wonder like, maybe it's a boundary thing as well. As in like, do what, is this okay? Or is this not okay? And I think I've learned that it's not okay. And actually, to actually get the most out of work, I need to be fully, fully believing in what the outcome is and who it's for and what it's doing and why. And do you yeah. think, where do you think that want for kind of, I guess, like personal value alignment and the businesses that you're working for values align? What, where do you think, why do you think that's so important for you? I think I've got a, this intense desire to have a really cohesive output on all levels. So I've got a really strong sense that I want to cultivate meaningful connections. I want mm-hmm. to be proud of my processes and outputs, and I want to be making an impact for the positive. And all everything that I do needs to be able to fit into those things. Otherwise, I feel a fundamental mismatch and discomfort and then a sense of resentment towards the things that I'm putting my energy into. Where that comes from, I don't know what we're sure, really. 
and no, is it like maybe it's purpose? I think it's purpose. I've got to feel like I I want to have a purpose, and I know what that is. I know what I want to do. It's just interesting to me because I'm not sure all of us can speak. Oh, I can't speak with the same clarity on how all the different pieces of life fit together as much as you. So I'm just wondering how that kind of came to be. Um, one thing I absolutely love doing is taking myself off probably to like London South Bank Centre with my iPad, my notebook, a pint of beer on the waterside. And I just have a big old think about all of my activities, everything that I'm putting my heart into. And I have a big old think about my values. It's like one of my favorite things. If I could do it, I could probably do it about every six months. Just have a real like refresh. And it usually always comes back to the same thing. So I've got a bunch of questions I'm asking myself, like when are the times I'm feeling most proud? When are the times I'm feeling like I'm most engaged? When are the times I'm feeling all lots of like positive emotion, almost energized? <clears throat> and then I'll note down all the things that then are, are doing that, are giving that. And then noticing trends within all of those. And that's how then I've identified like, okay, we really need to be in these areas in order to feel most aligned. And therefore that that's what then gives me energy. And I, maybe that's part of then why I've got so many things going on, which maybe isn't always a good thing because sometimes there's just genuinely too much. But um, everything, I want everything to give me energy. And by assessing all of those things, um, it's really life-giving. And I've definitely been in situations where I felt physically and emotionally drained working on something, even though I could be designing, I could be in client calls, it's all things that I love doing, but I come out of it feeling like, oh, what is this? But then actually reassessing, thinking about what gives me energy, can we, to... to to define those things has been so helpful and it's not necessarily just about enjoyment because I think there are going to be things that you just don't enjoy and you're having a bad day and it's not good I think it's about overall direction and trajectory trajectory that's a difficult word for me right now so sometimes I'm really not enjoying something by categorically no okay this is going to lead to something really great so I will do it and I will do it with passion and purpose, even though I'm not enjoying it right now because I can see where it's going to head. And I try to think of an example of that. Can't right now, but that would be handy, wouldn't it, to have an example. Maybe wow. I know what it is. Okay. Doing something laborious, potentially like, I don't know, like timesheets. I don't know if you ever track your time for something. Not everyone does it. Sometimes people think it's not important. Sometimes it is. But at the moment, we are tracking our time. And I find it very hard to do because <clears throat> I'm not quite sure why. I'll, I will examine that in myself and in my heart and I'll find out why. I don't find it very easy. But as soon as I'm like, okay, but I need to do this because it's leading to a better understanding of how I'm using my time. Therefore, I can do it with passion and purpose. Because I understand the end goal, the, the reason for it, I can understand. Um, so that's kind of like a slightly trivial example, but I think you can apply that then to other things that as well that are difficult. I know that this is heading towards the right thing. But then if something's difficult and you're like, but where's it heading? 
is heading towards giving a website to this client. I don't even believe in what they're doing. Then I'm like, uh oh, I can't work on this with passion and purpose. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I like that because that's a really important distinction to make. Like there are things in life that maybe are a little bit tedious. Maybe you don't enjoy doing them in the moment as much as other things. But if there is, you know, something in the in the longer term that that is going to, you know, give give you some kind of passion or purpose um, down the line for, then it's worth then it's worth doing. But I love this idea of overall assessing what gives you energy positivity and and engagement and and doing more of that and prioritizing that higher i'm going to do that after the episode this is why i'm saying this out loud you know write down all the things that give you energy and positivity one sort of tip about finding out the things that you really engage with is just um writing two things that you're grateful for for that day because then when you look back every six months you can just really easily spot the patterns and things that you're grateful for and it's not always what you expect. So that's how I found out that meaningful connections were so important because every day I'd just written, oh, I had really nice chats with so-and-so. Oh, I had a really nice conversation. And I was like, hmm, this seems to be quite important to me seeing as I say it every day. <laughs> Tell me about failure number three. Undervaluing yourself to the detriment of your career. Yep. Um, I think especially when I started started out, I um, massively was like, "Oh, I'm just I don't I don't know what I'm doing. I'll just charge a one peanut. This is my. I'll just take a crumb. Don't you worry." <laughs> but I think I stayed like that a little bit too long, and also because I studied illustration, I didn't do graphic design. When I actually did get my first job as a graphic designer in a branding agency. Um, I felt a little bit like everyone's everyone's like, oh, she's the self-taught graphic designer. She, and therefore, I sort of undervalued them the offering that I was bringing, which I think meant that I didn't take risks. I didn't play as much as I think would have been helpful. I, I could have, I don't want to say, I could, oh, I could have done that. Um, but limiting self-belief is, like a, is a real thing. It's a real thing. I think it does actually... Um, you sort of close doors for yourself. This idea of self-taught, um, I think, is really interesting because um, some people have a kind of pride in being self-taught. It kind mm. of gives, it actually gives them this sense of self, like I can do anything. I'm self-taught, and it's like a kind of pride thing. Whereas I think for other people, it's like, should I don't want anyone to know that I didn't go to an expensive school to study this, like mm-hmm. I'm. Like I'm self-taught, but I'll have it. I'll give it a go, type thing. So it's quite interesting how different personalities kind of process that, and and how much people are willing to value their self-worth linked to linked to that. Yeah, I think there. I think you're absolutely spot on because it's not about where you got the education; it's about what you've taken from it and how you're implying it, how you're growing and implementing and changing and developing and striving for excellence which you can do by teaching yourself Mm. and i bet that was you lizzie i bet you bet you were way better than a lot of people in this place (laughs) i mean you're a very meticulous person i i do you know i reckon it was mostly down to 
like I feel like there were there were fewer examples of it happening. There was less of this like this webflow community that is happening now wasn't around at that point. It didn't have the only other role models were like people who did go to Rafa Design School. And mm. so maybe it was part of that, like not be, not seeing it in practice. Which is what got me so excited about when I was teaching at Shillington, because it literally felt like the next generation of designers. And I was just so excited about that. And the whole the whole mindset and the whole new way of learning and applying that learning. Yeah. Tell us about that. Because if anyone's listening now and they're like, okay, guys, interesting conversation, hopefully, if they've been listening to 50 minutes in, you know, <laughs> how... <laughs> What tell us about Shillington cohort-based courses? Why that's kind of challenging um, these traditional education systems? Yeah, so if you don't know, Shillington is a graphic design boot camp, and it markets itself. It boasts that it's the original graphic design boot camp, and, and it's a very intense course. If you do it full time, it's a very intense three-month course. And as a teacher, I think it was so beneficial to me for my own design practice that I'd almost recommend anyone who wants to improve their design to go and become a teacher at Shillington because it honestly it just gave me so much and so many skills in critiquing I think that was probably one of the biggest things actually two biggest things process and critiquing they were the the two biggest things um processes in like following the process trusting the process not skipping process not jumping to the end product, but really going through idea generation, thumbnails, sketching, iterations, everything to really like push yourself beyond the first idea. And then critique, um, not settling for for average, but pushing it and getting it in front of other people quickly and other people that you trust and have good opinions and community within that as well. So for your final question, it's a little bit harder. Are you ready? Okay. What is your next failure going to be? Oh, good question. I, um, yeah, that is a good question. (laughs) If you even want to talk about it. My next failure. I mean, it could be so many, so many things. I think it, well, I, would, I would consider it a real, I would consider it a failure if I didn't put into practice all the things that I believe in and let, let something slip. I would find that really hard. Thanks so much for listening to episode 39 of Webflow and thanks to Lizzie for coming on the podcast. Weirdly, I actually felt that I really needed this episode. Life coach Lizzie, as she is now going to be known as by me, is acutely aware of how she works and feels motivated. She has made conscious decisions that she is not only wanting to be a no-coder, but that she specifically wants to work with social impact brands. It's not nice working on jobs that you just take because they're well paid. Like, they're kind of dead jobs. And in the end, I don't think they're necessarily worth the money. I think it's helpful to take yourself down to the South Bank get a beer and work out what makes you feel energized and positive and then try and move towards that next week we're going to be having elsa amri a designer based in tanzania going to be talking about her flails have a great week web flavors <laughs>